0: Section 5 of After Dark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Grzinski After Dark by Wilkie Collins The Traveler's Story of a Terribly Strange Bed. Part 1 shortly after my education at college was finished i happened to be staying at paris with an english friend we were both young men then and lived i am afraid rather a wild life in the delightful city of our sojourn one night we were idling about the neighbourhood of the palais royal doubtful to what amusement we should next betake ourselves my friend proposed a visit to frascati's but his suggestion was not to my taste I knew frascati's, as the French saying is, by heart. Had lost and won plenty of five-franc pieces there merely for amusement's sake until it was amusement no longer, and was thoroughly tired-in fact, of all the ghastly respectabilities of such a social anomaly as a respectable gambling-house. For heaven's sake, said I to my friend, let us go somewhere where we can see a little genuine blackguard poverty-stricken gaming, with no false gingerbread glitter thrown over it all. Let us get away from fashionable frascotties to a house where they don't mind letting in a man with a ragged coat, or a man with no coat, ragged or otherwise. Very well, said my friend, we needn't go out of the Palais Royal to find the sort of company you want. Here's the place, just before us, as blackguard a place, by all report, as you could possibly wish to see. In another minute we arrived at the door, and entered the house, the back of which you have drawn in your sketch. When we got upstairs, we had left our hats and sticks with the doorkeeper, we were admitted into the chief gambling-room. We did not find many people assembled there, but, few as the men were who looked up at us on our entrance, they were all types, lamentably true types, of their respective classes. We had come to see blackguards, but these men were something worse. There is a comic side more or less appreciable, in all blackguardism. Here there was nothing but tragedy—mute, weird tragedy. The quiet in the room was horrible. The thin, haggard, long-haired young man, whose sunken eyes fiercely watched the turning up of the cards, never spoke. The flabby, fat-faced, pimply player, who pricked his piece of pasteboard perseveringly, to register how often black one, and how often red, never spoke. The dirty, wrinkled old man, with the vulture eyes and the damned greatcoat, who had lost his last sou and still looked on desperately after he could play no longer, never spoke. Even the voice of the croupier sounded as if it were strangely dulled and thickened in the atmosphere of the room. I had entered the place to laugh, but the spectacle before me was something to weep over. I soon found it necessary to take refuge in excitement from the depression of spirits which was fast stealing on me. Unfortunately, I sought the nearest excitement, by going to the table and beginning to play. Still more unfortunately, as the event will show, I won won prodigiously, won incredibly, won at such a rate that the regular players at the table crowded round me, and, staring at my stakes with hungry, superstitious eyes, whispered to one another that the English stranger was going to break the bank. The game was rouge et noir. I had played at it in every city in Europe, without, however, the care or the wish to study the theory of chances— that philosopher's stone of all gamblers, and a gambler in the strict sense of the word I had never been. I was heart-whole from the corroding passion for play. My gaming was a mere idle amusement. I never resorted to it by necessity, because I never knew what it was to want money. I never practiced it so incessantly as to lose more than I could afford or to gain more than I could coolly pocket without being thrown off my balance by my good luck. In short, I had hitherto frequented gambling-tables, just as I frequented ballrooms and opera-houses, because they amused me, and because I had nothing better to do with my leisure hours. But on this occasion it was very different now. For the first time in my life I felt what the passion for play really was— my success first bewildered, and then, in the most literal meaning of the word, intoxicated me. Incredible as it may appear, it is nevertheless true that I only lost when I attempted to estimate chances, and played according to previous calculation. If I left everything to luck, and staked without any care or consideration, I was sure to win. To win in the face of every recognized probability in favor of the bank— at first some of the men present ventured their money safely enough on my collar, but I speedily increased my stakes to sums which they dared not risk. One after another they left off playing and breathlessly looked on at my game. Still time after time I staked higher and higher, and still won. The excitement in the room rose to fever pitch. The silence was interrupted by a deep-muttered chorus of oaths and exclamations in different languages. Every time the gold was shovelled across to my side of the table, even the imperturbable croupier dashed his rake on the floor in a French fury of astonishment at my success. But one man present preserved his self-possession, and that man was my friend. He came to my side and whispered in English. "'begged me to leave the place satisfied with what I had already gained. "'I must do him the justice to say that he repeated his warnings and entreaties several times, "'and only left me and went away after I had rejected his advice. "'I was to all intents and purposes gambling drunk, "'in terms which rendered it impossible for him to address me again that night. "'Shortly after he had gone, a hoarse voice behind me cried, "'A—' uh, "'Permit me, my dear sir, permit me to restore to their proper place two Napoleons which you have dropped. "'Wonderful luck, sir. I pledge you my word of honour as an old soldier. "'In the course of my long experience in this sort of thing, I never saw such luck as yours, never. "'Go on, sir, sacre mille bombes, go on boldly and break the bank.' I turned round and saw, nodding and smiling at me with inveterate civility, a tall man, dressed in a frogged and braided surtout. If I had been in my senses I should have considered him personally as being rather a suspicious specimen of an old soldier. He had goggling bloodshot eyes, mangy moustaches, and a broken nose. His voice betrayed a barrack-room intonation of the worst order and he had the dirtiest pair of hands I ever saw, even in France. These little personal peculiarities exercise, however, no repelling influence on me. In the mad excitement, the reckless triumph of that moment, I was ready to fraternize with anybody who encouraged me in my game. I accepted the old soldiers, offered pinch of snuff, clapped him on the back, and swore he was the honestest fellow in the world most glorious relic of the grand army that I had ever met with. "'Go on!' cried my military friend, snapping his fingers in ecstasy. "'Go on and win! Break the bank! milletonores, tonnerres! My gallant English comrade, break the bank!' And I did go on, went on at such a rate, that in another quarter of an hour the croupier called out, "'Gentlemen, the bank has discontinued for to-night.' All the notes, and all the gold, in that bank, now lay in a heap under my hands. The whole floating capital of the gambling-house was waiting to pour into my pockets. "'Tie up the money in your pocket-handkerchief, my worthy sir,' said the old soldier, as I wildly plunged my hands into my heap of gold. "'Tie it up, as we used to tie up a bit of dinner in the Grand Army.' "'Your winnings are too heavy for any breeches-pockets that ever were sewed. "'There, that's it. Shovel them in, notes and all. "'Credy! What luck! Stop! Another Napoleon on the floor. "'Ah, sacré petit polisson de Napoleon! Have I found thee at last? "'Now then, sir. Two tight double-knots each way, with your honourable permission. "'And the money's safe. Feel it. Feel it, fortunate sir.' hard and round as a cannon-ball. Ah, bah! If they had only fired such cannon-balls at us at Austerlitz, non d'une pipe, if they only had, and now, as an ancient grenadier, as an ex-brave of the French army, what remains for me to do, I ask what? Simply this, to entreat my valued English friend to drink a bottle of champagne with me, and toast the goddess fortune in foaming goblets before we part excellent ex brave convivial ancient grenadier champagne by all means an english cheer for an old soldier hurrah hurrah another english cheer for the goddess fortune hurrah 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 bravo the englishman the amiable gracious englishman in whose veins circulates the vivacious blood of france another glass ah bah the bottle is empty. Never mind. Vive Levin. I, the old soldier, order another bottle, and half a pound of bonbons with it. No, 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 ex-brave. Never ancient grenadier. Your bottle last time, my bottle this. Behold it. Toast away, the French army, the great Napoleon, the present company, the croupier, the honest croupier's wife and daughters, if he has any, the ladies generally everybody in the world!" By the time the second bottle of champagne was emptied I felt as if I had been drinking liquid fire. My brain seemed all aflame. No excess in wine had ever had this effect on me before in my life. Was it the result of a stimulant acting upon my system when I was in a highly excited state? Was my stomach in a particularly disordered condition? Or was the champagne amazingly strong? ex brave of the french army cried i in a mad state of exhilaration i am on fire how are you you have set me on fire do you hear my hero of austerlitz let us have a third bottle of champagne to put the flame out the old soldier wagged his head rolled his goggle eyes until i expected to see them slip out of their sockets placed his dirty forefinger by the side of his broken nose solemnly ejaculated coffee, and immediately ran into an inner room. The word pronounced by the eccentric veteran seemed to have a magical effect on the rest of the company present. With one accord they all rose to depart. Probably they had expected to profit by my intoxication. But finding that my new friend was benevolently bent on preventing me from getting dead drunk, had now abandoned all hope of thriving pleasantly on my winnings. Whatever their motive might be, at any rate, they went away in a body. When the old soldier returned and sat down again opposite to me at the table, we had the room to ourselves. I could see the croupier, and a sort of vestibule which opened out of it, eating his supper in solitude. The silence was now deeper than ever. A sudden change, too, had come over the ex-brave. He assumed a portentously solemn look, and when he spoke to me again, his speech ornamented by no oaths, enforced by no finger-snapping, enlivened by no apostrophes or exclamations. "'Listen, my dear sir,' said he, in mysteriously confidential tones, "'listen to an old soldier's advice. I have been to the mistress of the house.' a very charming woman with a genius for cookery, to impress on her the necessity of making us some particularly strong and good coffee. You must drink this coffee in order to get rid of your little amiable exaltation of spirits before you think of going home. You must, my good and gracious friend, with all that money to take home tonight. It is a sacred duty to yourself to have your wits about you. You are known to be a winner in an enormous extent by several gentlemen present to-night, who, in a certain point of view, are very worthy and excellent fellows, but they are mortal men, my dear sir, and they have their amiable weaknesses. Need I say more? Ah, no, no. You understand me. Now, this is what you must do. Send for a cabriolet when you feel quite well again. Drop all the windows when you get into it and tell the driver to take you home only through the large and well-lighted thoroughfares. Do this, and you and your money will be safe. Do this, and to-morrow you will thank an old soldier for giving you a word of honest advice. Just as the ex-brave ended his oration in very lachrymose tones, the coffee came in, ready poured out in two cups. My attentive friend handed me one of the cups with a bow. I was parched with thirst and drank it off at a draught. Almost instantly afterwards I was seized with a fit of giddiness and felt more completely intoxicated than ever. The room whirled round and round furiously. The old soldiers seemed to be regularly bobbing up and down before me, like the piston of a steam engine. I was half deafened by a violent singing in my ears, a feeling of utter bewilderment, helplessness idiocy overcame me i rose from my chair holding on by the table to keep my balance and stammered out that i felt dreadfully unwell so unwell that i did not know how i was to get home my dear friend answered the old soldier and even his voice seemed to be bobbing up and down as he spoke my dear friend it would be madness to go home in your state "'You would be sure to lose your money. "'You might be robbed and murdered with the greatest ease. "'I am going to sleep here. "'Do you sleep here, too? "'They make up capital beds in this house. "'Take one. "'Sleep off the effects of the wine, "'and go home safely with your winnings tomorrow. "'Tomorrow in broad daylight.' "'I had but two ideas left. "'One that I must never let go a hold "'of my handkerchief full of money. "'The other that I must lie down somewhere immediately, and fall off into a comfortable sleep. So I agreed to the proposal about the bed, and took the offered arm of the old soldier, carrying my money with my disengaged hand, preceded by the croupier. We passed along some passages and up a flight of stairs into the bedroom which I was to occupy. The ex brave shook me warmly by the hand, proposed that we should breakfast together, and then followed by the croupier, left me for the night. I ran to the wash hand stand, drank some of the water in my jug, poured the rest out, and plunged my face into it, then sat down in a chair and tried to compose myself. I soon felt better. The change for my lungs from the fetid atmosphere of the gambling-room to the cool air of the apartment I now occupied, the almost equally refreshing change— from my eyes from the glaring gaslights of the salon to the dim quiet flicker of one bedroom candle aided wonderfully the restorative effects of cold water the giddiness left me and i began to feel a little like a reasonable being again my first thought was of the risk of sleeping all night in a gambling-house my second of the still greater risk of trying to get out after the house was closed and of going home alone at night through the streets of paris with a large sum of money about me i had slept in worse places than this in my travels so i determined to lock bolt and barricade my door and take my chance till the next morning accordingly i secured myself against all intrusion looked under the bed and into the cupboard tried the fastening of the window and then satisfied that i had taken every proper precaution pulled off my upper clothing, put my light, which was dim one, on the hearth among a feathery litter of wood ashes, and got into bed with the handkerchief full of money under my pillow. End of Section 5